I really think that pathology uh, has very bright future. I'm an optimist, but in order to survive as a specialty, it must remain a keystone of clinical medicine and remain as a bridge between biomedical stuff that we already know and a vast sea of undiscovered facts that we do not know yet. Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strink. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. Pathology has links to many other medical specialties, and I think for a lot of us, that's the appeal of it. But as we'll find out today, pathology also has links to other scientific fields. My guest today is Dr. Ivan Damanoff. Dr. Damanoff is a pathologist, a developmental biologist, an educator, and also an author. As we talk about each of these areas, you'll find out what an amazing storyteller he is too. We'll also talk about his concept of building bridges throughout his career that might inspire you to build bridges in your own work. All right, here's Dr. Ivan Damanov. When you were growing up, so your your father was a veterinarian and your mother was a pharmacist. So it seems like you were kind of surrounded by science even at, at a young age. So I'm curious if you think that had an effect on you as far as like career path, like do you think being sort of surrounded by science kind of steered you into science? Uh, directly, I don't think that they had the influence, but uh, there was a lot of medicine in our house. My mother would come back from the pharmacy and she would always badmouth the doctors and complain how they are insensitive and how she had to change their prescriptions and all this type of things. You know, my mother was a proto-feminist in her days in the 1930s, 1940s. In our town, there were seven pharmacies, and she was the only female in that group. And she had constantly to fight with them to get her voice heard. The doctors were also kind of misogynistic and kind of like to put her down. She was uh, actually a very active member of the community, and she served as a consultant to whoever came to the pharmacy, especially young women that have problems with contraception. Or whatever. At that time, there was no real contraception, but they would come to her, open their minds, and heart, and she would give them advice. So that approach really kind of influenced me because I liked to come and visit her in the pharmacy. She would give me a little test. I would quote unquote help her. And that was like weighing various medicinal herbs on or preparing some creams that I would then dispense. Uh, in retrospect, I don't think that they pushed me toward medicine, but subconsciously, I think I was surrounded by medicine. And my parents' major influence was at the level of my intellectual development. Their, their mantra was educate, educate, educate. Uh, there was no question that I cannot just finish elementary school. I had to go to the university. They didn't care whatever I would study, but I was imbibed with this mantra. And by the age of six years, I spoke three languages. Our house was full of books. And I became an avid reader even before I went to school. For example, my mother would give me books that were way above my reading level. And when I was 11 years old, I read the book about Madame Curie, the famous French chemist who got a Nobel Prize. And uh, I think that was the first book 
that I read about science. At that time, I was 11 years old, but I still remember uh, the book was written by her daughter, Irene Kiri, who also got a Nobel Prize. So th these were uh, the strong women in my life, say so. Uh, this was my first encounter with science, and the rest is history. Now, going back to your mother for just a minute, I mean, you said she was very vocal and, you know, was... Assertive. One, yeah, assertive, and she wanted to have her voice heard. Do you think you picked that up from her? <laughs> yeah. Uh, my father and her were quite different. My father was a diplomat, and he never opened his mouth and said his opinion openly. My mother was uh, uh, a very tough woman. I, I think I did. Uh, what I like to say is from father, I inherited the gap. I like to tell stories, and my father was a great storyteller. My mother was a principled woman who was fighting, and her fighting spirit is something that I still cherish. I lost her when she was 62 years old. She was a smoker and died of lung cancer, but her impression on me was indelible. Okay, I can understand that. All right, now you, know, you said when you were 11, that was kind of your first, you know, reading about Marie Curie, that was kind of your first interest into science. Now, how did that turn into uh, interest into medicine? You know, in Europe, you have to decide what you are going to study after high school. So uh, medicine is just one of the university's subjects that I was considering. I wanted to be a mathematician. I wanted to be a philosopher. And then finally I said, no, the all-encompassing approach to life would be medicine. So I chose that because I was interested in it and because I thought that my quote-unquote <laughs> uh, for 18-year-olds, if you can call it life philosophy, was most compatible with medicine. Okay, I see. And I think I, I read initially you wanted to become a psychiatrist. Where, does, where, where did that interest come from? It was from high school. Uh, my professor of psychology was a very intelligent and smart woman who spotted that I have interest in psychology. So she gave me one day to read Sigmund Freud's book on psychoanalysis. Uh, I was 16 years old, and you know, if you read Freud, Freud at that age, well, what you are interested in is obviously sex. And there was a lot of sex in Freud. So my professor suggested that I prepare a 30-minute lecture from my reading and present that lecture to my fellow classmates. I did that, and after that, she convened a parent-teacher conference and had me provide the same lecture to the parents. <laughs> that was an experience. You know, you have a uh, Yeah, how did that go? Well, it, it didn't go well because halfway through, we, we came to the topic of my probation. And I still remember an officer who was one of the parents and said to me, you know, you young man, you can masturbate, but you will not allow my son to do it because I'm a hardworking person. He needs all the proteins and other nutrients in his food, and I would not like him to lose it in vain. <laughs> that was it. Okay. Really interesting <laughs> experience. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it. Okay. And anyhow, uh, after I entered medical school, 
I told everybody who would listen to me that I want to become a psychiatrist. And for three years, so the medical school was five years. So for the first three years, clinical studies, I was dreaming about psychiatry, looking for psychiatry books and all this, until I came to the wards. The psychiatry wards those days had a lot of chronic psychiatric patients who were treated either by electroshock or insulin shock. And they were really terrified of that treatment. They were screaming, they would tie them down, and then they would shock them. I said, I could not do this for the rest of my life. So I gave up on psychiatry. For me, this was like inquisition or torture. And I didn't want to be perceived as a physician who tortures his patients. So uh, I switched and decided I'm going to be an internist. I stayed with internal medicine for a year or two. And then during the last year of my studies, I said, I'm more interested in studying how diseases affect the body than trying to provide cures, especially in those days, there were no cancer drugs. I mean, the patients were dying. Surgery was the only approach. and I didn't want to be a surgeon. So I said, I'll become a pathologist and study diseases from inside out and vice versa. I was a bookish guy, and for me, it was a very good choice. Even now, four years after retiring from the hospital practice, I still read pathology journals. Uh, I read articles on the web, and I kind of distill my readings into something that is has become a kind of entertainment and passion for me. Uh, there is a magazine called The Pathologist. This is a throwaway journal. You know, you get it for free. Mm-hmm. And it's published in the United Kingdom, but it's widely distributed for free in the United States and, and in all major countries around the world. I provide multiple choice questions for them. And those questions I prepare by reading literature. And jokingly, I always say this is fun, but my primary goal is to stay in contact with medicine and to stave off Alzheimer's disease. So far, it has worked. (laughs) Okay. I I guess that's a good way to do it. Now, when, when you switched into pathology, I'm curious, like, what was the sort of the reputation of the pathology field at the time? Because, you know, these days, it's still kind of people think pathologists are introverts or they're antisocial or things like that. Like, what what was it like at, at that time? Uh, at that time, the legendary paraffin curtain separating pathologists from the rest of the medicine was even more prominent. Pathology departments were frequently outside of the hospital in a special building, especially in Yugoslavia, the country where I grew up. So it was considered to be a specialty looking to become a clinical specialty. When I came to the United States in 1967, it was much more clinical, and I really enjoyed that. Okay, I see. I've actually never never heard the term paraffin curtain, but I kind of I like that. Now, you, okay, you just mentioned coming to the United States. Now, was that for pathology residency? You know, I, I grew up in Yugoslavia. That was a communist country, mm-hmm. and I was a fan of uh, America. I was learning my stuff from American books 
uh, I was dreaming about going to America, but a communist system would not let me out. So it was almost impossible. It was a dream. But on the other hand, I didn't give up. And as they say, if you do not believe that impossible sometimes becomes possible, you are not a realist. And so I kept dreaming. And one day I came across a group of doctors from America. I should preface that, that as a medical student, I was moonlighting as a tourist guide. And one day, so I, I was called to show the city of Zagreb, where I lived, lived in Croatia, to a group of these physicians from Hawaii. And I still remember how the ladies at the end of the tour went into the cathedral and gentlemen were standing next to the bus and smoking. And one of them asked me, are you a professional tourist guide? And I said, no, I'm a medical student. And he said, wow, you are a lucky guy because all these gentlemen that you see here, they are all physicians. So we started talking about medicine. And one of them was apparently so impressed with my discussions that he gave me his business card. That business card was my first contact with the United States. It was Hawaii, but still it was United States. And uh, I wrote to him, he gave my letter to his administrators, and very soon I was on my way to prepare the exams that would allow me to practice medicine in the United States. It took me three years I had to finish my uh, medical school. There was a prescribed compulsory internship that I had to finish. And I had to take, at that time, it, it wasn't called USMLE, it was called ECFMG exam. It was a full-day exam of basic and clinical sciences. I passed that and then started looking where to go. I never went to Hawaii, but <laughs> Hawaii was my first step to the United States. I, I ended up in Cleveland, actually. Okay. I was there for one year, then I moved to New York, and that's it. Now, coming coming to the U.S., then, I'm curious about kind of the, was there like a culture shock? Was it, was it difficult to get used to being in a completely different country? Yeah, it, it was, you know. Cleveland, people were just so friendly and everything, but they had no idea where is Yugoslavia, where I came from. They, they asked me, do you want me to teach you how to take a shower? <laughs> I said, no, I, I, I know how to take a shower. Uh, they were giving me lessons about this and that. And, uh, anyhow, it was a learning experience. Uh, we, we were assigned, I was assigned to an internist uh, who took me the first weekend to the golf course. And he gave me a lesson and said, you know, young man, if you want to succeed in this country, the first thing is you have to learn how to play golf. And okay. I never listened to him and I never learned to play golf. And, you know, maybe I would have been much more successful were I to listen to his advice. But that was his advice. I don't know. I, I tried golf for a little while. I found it <laughs> just exceedingly frustrating. So you, you moved to the U.S., but you didn't stay permanently. I mean, you've, you've kind of been back and forth from... United States back to what's now Croatia. 
and it yes. seems like, okay and it seems like and you've done that a few times it seems like it's been sort of important to you to keep kind of a, a foot in each country so to speak mm-hmm. why, why was that important to you i, I wouldn't say that I, I was doing it on a completely rational basis first of all my mother as I told you, she was a very assertive woman. She said, okay, you spent two years in America. It's time for you to come and join the family. Okay. So okay. I took it very seriously. Uh, my wife's mother was even more assertive. She was a nurse and she said, you know, you have to come. This is a poor country. You have to work on uh, raising the level of uh, health conditions in your own country. Anyhow, the, one of the most important things was actually in the United States. 1967, this was uh, the time of the Vietnam War, and they needed doctors. The, the months after I came, they raised the age of the draft for the physicians from 26, that was my age at that time, to 35. So I became suddenly eligible to be drafted and to be sent to Vietnam. I spent one year in Yugoslav army, the worst time of my year, I was allergic to army discipline and rules and regulations and all the nonsense. Mm-hmm. And I said, one year of army life was enough. I'm not going to risk to be drafted and to be sent to Vietnam. So it was much easier for me to give in to my maternal pleas to come back. And I came back to Croatia. Okay. Is this then about the time that you started studying developmental biology? Yeah. Uh, when I came back to Croatia, I, you know, in America, I, I was in the hospital. I was like a clinical pathologist interacting with my peers and with other doctors. When I came back to Croatia, there was a Institute of Pathology on a hill about five miles from the hospital, completely separate. It was not clinical pathology. So I said, if I want to survive here, I better find some way of doing real science. So I started looking, and at that time, I read a book by a British-Australian pathologist by name Rupert Willis. The book was entitled On the Borderline Between Embryology and Pathology. And as I told you, I read many English American books during my medical studies, but this was the book that really made such an impression on me. And I decided borderland between one discipline and the other. So I was intrigued and I decided that that would be probably the best place for me to continue with my interest in science. So I knew during these two years in America, I think I learned about 80% of the pathology that I needed for practicing pathology, but I didn't know any science. So I found a professor who was my mentor, who became my mentor, and I joined his developmental biology, or they call it also embryology team in Zagreb. Okay, now I read in a, a different interview that you that you did that you said, without a good understanding of embryology, one cannot fully understand pathology, and vice versa. Can you explain what you mean by this? You see, uh, when you start from a fertilized ovum, that fertilized ovum has two ways of going. 
One is the normal development, and the other is abnormal development. You cannot understand the normal development unless you study the abnormal development. And if you want to prevent the abnormal development, you should be quite conversant with the normal development. You know, we know that in today's times when we are discussing abortions and all the other problems of reproductive biology, we know that about 20% of all pregnancies are spontaneously aborted. The, you know, the fetus, in most instances, is so abnormal that it cannot develop beyond the 10, 12 week period, and the body, the maternal body, will reject it, and the fetus will be spontaneously aborted. So, all, all these things kind of stimulated me to learn a little bit more about embryology and at the same time apply my rudimentary knowledge of pathology to studying all those specimens and the mechanisms. And Professor Skreb, with whom I started working, was a mouse embryologist studying rats and mouse. So I, I thought this would be just perfect for me. It was low-tech but high-yield field that ultimately, not for me, but my colleagues who were working in the same field, it led to major changes in the field of developmental biology, but also revolutionized our outlook on life. Today, you can produce a cloned mouse from cells that have nothing to do with the oocytes or sperm. These are cloned mice that are produced from somatic cells. In other words, uh, in the field that I was entering has just started developing, and it was nice to be there. Uh, in Francis Crick, the Nobel Prize winner, Watson Crick, DNA, and so on, he once said that in science, like in art, it is important to be when the painting was created. I entered this borderland at the time when the whole picture was being painted. You know, I added a few little brushes here and there. I don't think that I made major contributions, but it was a very exciting period of my life to enter it. And it opened, for me at least, the world of science. And that's where I really started thinking that I have to have a hybrid career where I could do on one side science and the other and clinical pathology in the hospital. Okay, yeah, I was going to say that it must have been exciting to be on sort of the cutting edge of all of this stuff as it was all brand new. It was brand new and it was, I think, an eye-opener because wherever, whatever we did, it was, you know, controversial. People didn't know. And somehow, I don't know, early mammalian development was not very well investigated at that time. You know, later on, it became some of the data that I also contributed have allowed us to manipulate the early embryos, to make all sorts of uh, invented creatures that you know, they compared them to chimeras. 
chimeras are mythological pictures. You can see of them in the museums where it's a mixture of four or five animals. We can do this today with normal cells from early embryos. Just think of Dolly. Dolly the sheep. Oh, sure. You know, she was the first cloned animal where they produced a living animal from, from cells that had nothing to do with either oocytes or sperm. We could do this with human cells as well. Obviously, the ethics of science do not allow us to do that. But technically, piece of cake, we can do it. Even I could do it at my age. <laughs> <laughs> this is the People of Pathology podcast with our guest, Dr. Ivan Damanoff. We'll be right back. LabVine is an interactive online learning platform where laboratory professionals learn, develop, and discover by sharing knowledge and building on each other's experience. The platform provides global access to internationally accredited laboratory-specific courses and other resources developed by lab specialists for the laboratory industry. LabVine is free to sign up, and you can use the link in the show notes to get started. Whether you're working hard at the grossing bench, the autopsy table, behind a microscope, or any other area of the medical laboratory, there's one thing that we all need. Comfortable scrubs. The scrubs that I wear come from Dressamed. This is a company in California, and they've been making high-quality scrubs since 1980. They have a variety of styles and colors to choose from. As a matter of fact, I just ordered a set of the new soft stretch scrubs, so I'm looking forward to trying those out. You can check out Dressamed by following the link in the show notes. Make sure you sign up for their loyalty program where every order will earn you points towards special offers and discounts. Now back to Dr. Ivan Damanoff on the People of Pathology podcast. You mentioned Dr. Schreb a little while ago, Professor Nicholas Schreb. Now, he was, there are, it seems like there are several sort of prominent mentors throughout your year, your career, and it, he was definitely one of them. How was it that you met him and then came to work with him? <laughs> you know, many things start with a small first step. Small first step like Armstrong and the moon. Uh, for me, the small step was when I got my courage together and made an appointment to see him. Uh, you must understand that in Croatia, or that matter in whole Europe, professors are people that are close to God. You don't speak to them. You do not knock on their doors and say, I would like to talk to you or I have some problems. Could you explain this? No, they are in their heavenly kingdom, so to say, like a ancient Greek Olympus, they sit there and are absolutely inaccessible. So I somehow got myself together and all the courage that I had and made an appointment to see him. And I just want to recount my first encounter with him because that opened the door and in my mind said it convinced me this is the man that I want to work with. So okay. I knocked on his door, he opened the door, sat down, and I was standing like a soldier, stiff, completely scared. I couldn't open my mouth. And he says, why don't you sit down? No. I said, I didn't understand, sir. What did you mean? Why don't you sit down? I'm asking you. You are asking me to sit down? The implication was, I cannot sit in the presence of a god, like a professor. And he says, yeah, just relax and sit down and let's talk. What do you want? So that was the first encounter. And I like to tell that story to my children and all this because, you know, it's a very important thing. Uh, not only it's that it was important, but, you know, I... When I came to the United States and became a professor of pathology, I had an open-door policy, and the students would come to my office 
even, even without knocking on the door because the door was open. So the first thing that I would, I had always a chair there. I would always tell them, sit down and let's talk. What do you want? <laughs> you know, they would be scared. And then when they saw that I'm not biting and that I'm trying to be friendly with them, they would change. And I think that interpersonal relationship between the teacher and the student is what makes America so unique. I don't know other countries, but in my country of birth, Croatia, it's still like that. The professors are behind closed doors and you have to make an appointment with the secretary to see them. Then the meeting is over in two minutes because they basically throw you out of the office. Yeah, anyhow, uh, uh, I had a wonderful experience with Professor Scrib, and I had also a, a classmate from the university, Davor Salter, who joined us, our team. So three of us, in a period of two, three years, we published some dozen quite important papers. You know, we were young, we were working 24 hours a day, and he was just a benevolent dictator, as we called him, kind of. If we would stray away, he would always keep us focused. And, you know, Dower Salter, my friend, is, he chose to become a basic scientist and made a brilliant career. He's got four or five major developmental biology awards in the United States and in Europe, and is one of the leading developmental biologists in the world. My road was not to be in basic science. I chose a hybrid career. I don't regret it. We are all different. You know, if I may also mention, yeah, go ahead. In the United States, in the 19. 19- in the 70s, I was attracted to a man whose name was G. Barry Pierce. He was professor and chairman of biology in Denver, Colorado. He tried to recruit me there because he, he was like me, a hybrid person. He was a pathologist, but at the same time, he was a basic scientist. And I exchanged Professor Scrape for Dr. Pierce and became a devotee of him. And he helped me a lot because, you know, science is a very competitive field and it's good to have a group of people with whom you can communicate, plan things together or fight the big fights. Together. Sure. No, that makes sense. I, I can understand that. How did you get involved then in teaching? I mean, does after that incredible success teaching Freud to your high school uh, parents, is that were you still interested in teaching after that? Is that is that where it started, or, <laughs> or where did that come from? You, you know, uh, the parental criticism. Uh, I, I, you know, it's a long story, but the other parents all chimed in after that officer criticized me. The meeting was about 15 minutes, and I never finished my lecture. Uh, but my classmates, oh, they gave me such high marks, and uh, I said, you know, maybe I, I, I have a knack for teaching. And then one, one of my classmates in the high school was a very good ballet dancer. She was dancing modern ballet and her mother took her out of the school and enrolled her into a specialized modern dance school. But she had to pass all, all the subjects at the end of the school year and to take a exam 
math and literature and all this. And my professors recommended to the mother of this classmate of mine that she hires me and I, that would be sometimes the 11th and 12th grade high school. I started giving quote unquote private lessons in math to my, and I prepared her for the final exam and she passed with flying colors. So I said, you know, if I can teach a woman who wants to be a dancer and who doesn't give a hoot about math to pass the exams, then I could maybe teach other people as well. So uh, when I came to United States, I, I read a very important report that man by name Abraham Flexner report oh, reported yeah. in 1910. He was not a doctor. He was a businessman, but he was hired by the American Medical Association to reform the teaching of medicine at the universities. In 1910, Flaxner wrote his famous report, which resulted in closure of three quarters of all medical schools. So he was a real revolutionary man. But the doctors of that time were in power and they were listening to him. So it was like a doctrine. And Flexner ordained that academic physicians should work as doctors in hospital, do research in the lab, and act as teachers for medical students. So they would have a tripartite profile. I decided very early in my life and medical career to become a Flexnerian academic pathologist. My entire life I worked as a practicing pathologist in the hospital. I did research in the lab and wrote scientific papers. And at the same time, I taught medical students, residents, nurses, lab technicians, and in essence, anybody who had patience to listen to me or wanted to hear my nonsense. Okay. Uh, false modesty aside, uh, I think that I'm a pretty good lecturer, and from my peers as well as from my medical students. Uh, I like to say that my greatest compliment that I cherish up still is the four words that were written in one of those student evaluations that person wrote about me, funny, silly, old man. <laughs> uh, okay. My motto was always, uh, whatever you do, it must be fun. If it's not fun, it's not worth doing. I applied it also to lectures. And I would always say, if the lectures are not fun, it's not worth suffering through them. So unless the students are laughing during my lectures, I know that I have missed the point. So mm. I was a funny, silly old man. <laughs> I think that's something for us to all of us to aspire to. Um, now, throughout your career, you've, you've published more than, what, 20 medical textbooks, uh, in addition to over 300 articles and papers. But there's one book in particular that I want to talk about for a few minutes, and this is Pathology for the Health Professions. Now, if we can go back to sort of the origin of that book, why did you decide you wanted to write a book like this? May I correct you? I don't know how did you come up with the number of 20 books, but Oh. Uh, I, once I was asked how many books did I write and I okay. said no I don't know why because uh, I wrote maybe 20 maybe 30 books I don't know but 
many of these books were translated into foreign languages. So I, I have the Chinese translation of my book that you are just mentioning. Huh. I have an Indonesian. I don't even know what's the official name of the language that they speak in Indonesia. But one of my books was translated into Indonesian. One was translated into Polish. Uh, two were translated into Portuguese. So no, it's difficult to say, but uh, I, I can tell you that if I were to count the number of hours I spent writing the books and get all the receipts that I got as honoraria, uh, the effort would be paid less than the official minimum wage. The writing books is solitary work. You either like it or you don't like it. Uh, huh? you, you, there are very few people who make, quote unquote, big money from books. You know, uh, there was a surgical pathologist by name, Dr. Rosai, who died two years ago. And once I asked him, did you make a lot of money from your books? And he says, you wouldn't believe it, but I'm one of the rare pathologists who really made money. And I said, what does it mean make money from a textbook? And he says, he told me, I bought a three-bedroom apartment in New York City. So, yeah. <laughs> that, Decent that's money. Fair. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I can tell you that I, I did make that money, but it was a lot of fun. I started, uh, like any, many things in my life, but they happened by accident. I was living in Philadelphia, and Philadelphia is a big medical publishing town. So I was writing book reviews for pathology journals. And some editors noticed those book reviews and started picking my brain and inviting me for lunches to get my opinion about their book proposals. Uh, so sitting at one of these lunches with a woman who was editor at Saunders. Saunders was at that time one of the big publishing firms. Mm -hmm. uh, she said, okay, now I fed you. Now I have a proposal. How about signing a contract with me to write a book? And I said, there are a couple of very good books and I'm not going to compete with Robbins, which was dominating at that time and still dominates the pathology market. He says, no, I want to have a smaller book that would be for health-related professions. And I said, I never did anything like that. So we started talking, and then she promised me the help of professional developing editors, medical writers who helped me streamline my writing and improve it. They also promised me an artist who will make the drawings according to my ideas. It took me three years to finish that book. Three years is a lot of time, right? But yeah. hard work that I think paid off because the book, after 27 years, it's still in print. It is in the sixth edition. I'm getting some return, but nothing to brag about. I should also mention that in that book, the illustrations were prepared by a young illustrator who was freelancing for Saunders. His name was Jim Perkins. That mm -hmm. you had Jim on one of these interviews. I did, yes. Great guy. 
He, he is not so young anymore, but that was in 1994 when Jim and I worked on this and developed. I, I think that I helped him develop his own style, which is quite recognizable. He is now a superstar of medical illustration. He's professor teaching in Rochester, and he is obviously very well versed in all this because he's the main illustrator for Robin's textbook of pathology, which is, as you know, the Bible of pathology, as I like to say. Right, yeah. Yeah, he's kind of one of the leaders in the medical illustration field now, I, I, I would think. It's, you know, something about this book, you develop this, it's called the depict approach. And I, I want to talk about this because this is an interesting kind of approach to a teaching and to learning. So you can, can you tell me what, what this means and how you develop this kind of system? You know, I, I always felt that teaching should be a way of making complicated things simple. And there is a quote from Albert Einstein, although it is disputed if he ever said it, which goes like, we should make everything as simple as possible, but not a bit. And it sounds Einstein-like. Sure, yeah. It means simple, but not a bit more. Not a bit more means you have to have a measure to transmit the basics, but don't make it too complicated. So the PICT is an acronym This describes my approach to teaching pathology. When I teach about a disease, I start with D, which means definition. This is this and this is that. And for a good definition, you have to describe the basics and also make a distinction from other similar diseases. Then I go to E, depict D, E, which stands for etiology, P, which has actually three rubrics because that's the basic pathology. That means pathology, pathogenesis, pathophysiology, depict with three above it. And, and then we have C, the picked C is for clinical features, and T at the end is for therapy or prognosis. So uh, I urge my students to make cards that will have these letters and then fill in, because if I do it for them, it doesn't work. They have to do it for themselves. But with my textbook, they can fill their index cards with that. So depict worked for medical students. Uh, I was teaching for 25 years. Uh, yes, remedial summer course in pathology. That was in the days when pathology was not integrated with the other subjects. So if you failed pathology, you had either to repeat the entire year, or you came to me in Kansas and studied for six weeks. And I showed that with my 350-page book, you could pass the national boards using the depict approach. So it worked. It's tested mm -hmm. in practice. I recommend it still to my students who want to listen to me. I think that you can use the same approach for students of nursing, pathology assistants, you name it, anyone who wants to study pathology at whichever uh, level. And my mantra is like the quote from Einstein, make it as simple as possible, but not a bit more. Mm -hmm. Okay. I like that. that I, I like that approach in it. Like you said, it breaks things down and it makes them easier to, to understand, to learn, and of course to recall, which is obviously the ultimate goal there. 
it, throughout your career, and you've t- you've talked about this a few times through this conversation, you've made bridges in different areas. For example, between you know Europe and America, between pathology and developmental biology. Now, was this like a deliberate? It's something that you intended to do, or did that just sort of happen as you as your career went along? You know, I I was always open minded, and I believed that the opportunities will present, and then you have to be prepared to catch them. And also, uh, I also believed that you, you should not be fixated on a single approach to life or anything in life that comes along your way. So uh, I believed that you have to remember I was the first time in America in 1967 and 68, the generation of students and young men I was 26, 27 years old. At that time, we were all over the world rebelling against the existing conditions. So we wanted to change the world. And one of the mantras of my 1968 generation was connect, connect, connect. These three words. You have to repeat them three times so that you remember that you're not alone and that you will not accomplish anything unless you connect. So uh, that time I was reading a book by uh, a writer from Yugoslavia, Ivo Andrić. He is the only Yugoslav writer who got the Nobel Prize for Literature. And the book was called The Bridge Over the River Drina. Drina is a river in former Yugoslavia. You know, in the 1990s, the Bosnia was a horrible place to live in because they were just ethnically killing each other. Uh, and that bridge was connecting Bosnia to the empire, which at that time was the Turkish empire. So it had a symbolism for me, and it linked to my mantra, connect, connect, connect. It had a profound effect on me, and I decided early in my life to become a quote-unquote bridge builder, not putting stones together or arches, but symbolically, of course, the bridges of mind. In that context, you know, I I like to mention a few religious things. Uh, The Roman Pope, the head of the Catholic Church, is in Latin called Pontifex Maximus. Translated from Latin, that means the ultimate or the great bridge builder. He is, in the religious terms, the person who is linking this world with the other up there high. I like to say that the Pope and I, (laughs) uh, of course you have to take it with a grain of salt when I talk about myself and compare myself with the Pope, but I like to say have joking it that Pope and I are in the same business. We build bridges. The only difference is that they do not call me Pontifex Maximus. I'm a minor player, but I still believe that you need even minor players to improve this world. Uh, I like to build bridges between continents, America and Europe between scientific disciplines, embryology and pathology, people of different nations, especially in a multinational country that I grew up, and so on. In my past life, I specialized building bridges between clinicians and basic scientists. It is my way of making 
the world a better place to live, or as some of my Jewish ancestors would say in Hebrew, Tikkun Olam, which means improve the world. You know, small contribution, but I feel that I had to do it. It's a calling that I feel. No, I like that. That makes a lot of sense. And do you feel like, you know, with this, this is sort of a lesson. Do you think that pathology needs other bridges in, in order to thrive in the future with everything, you know, with the, with kind of the digital revolution and all, all of that AI and those things? What other bridges do you think pathology needs? Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. I, I really think that pathology uh, has a very bright future. I'm an optimist, but in order to survive as a specialty, it must remain a keystone of clinical medicine and remain as a bridge between biomedical stuff that we already know and a vast sea of undiscovered facts that we do not know yet emphasis on yet because I'm 100% sure that this yet will be deleted. We we will conquer. Ignorance is very dangerous and we have to fight against it. This is my credo. Credo in Latin means belief, right? Something that I really believe in is devoting yourself to the stuff that you believe in, that you love doing, and I love pathology, and I am optimist, and I'm sure that pathology will blossom. Uh, I would like to finish this interview by saying that this is something that I called, uh, I use actually the title, uh, 17th century book by Thomas Brown, which is called Religio Medicae, or as I would say it in Croatian version of this Latin, Religio Medici. This is something that has kept me active for about 60, 70 years. And I believe that this faith in progress and pathology has the solution to almost all problems of medicine will pay off. We have to believe. Amen. Yes, I like that. That's a great message. And I think that's a great place to end. This was really an interesting conversation. I'm sure we could have gone on for at least another another hour because I know we skipped some things uh, that you that you've done throughout your your career. So uh, Dr. Ivan Damanoff, thank you very much. This has been great. It was a great pleasure. Great big thanks to Dr. Damanoff. Here's a preview from another episode that I think you'll enjoy. And then I'll be back with some final comments on this episode. And as far as pathology is concerned, like uh, because pathology is my specialty, right? Uh, we know that it's a foundation of clinical work, and it's covering all the facets of patient care, from testing to diagnosing to driving the management plans and to treat patient. So this field, this is a field that naturally fascinates critical thinkers and problem solvers. When I was a student, though, uh, that wasn't the case. Uh, a residency in one of the clinical streams was the most obvious choice and most students would come across career in pathology unintentionally. Mm-hmm. However, uh, this was not uh, how this came about for me. While doing my residency in dermatology, uh, then uh, I got an opportunity to participate in multidisciplinary meeting tumor boards and I witnessed the pathologist describing specific tissue findings, growth, as well as microscopic, and based on those, their diagnosis, which ultimately directed patient care. And it was actually during this time that I realized the critical role of pathology. 
You can hear more from Dr. Richa Saxena and her thoughts on pathology education in episode 51. Now, while I'm thanking Dr. Damanoff for being here today, I also need to thank Jim Perkins, who we talked about during the interview. Jim was on episode 109, and he was the one that introduced me to Dr. Damanoff. So thank you, Jim, for making this incredible conversation possible. There are a lot of really good lessons in this episode today, but the one that I really want to stress is Dr. Damanoff's concept of building bridges. And he was able to do this between two different scientific specialties and between two different continents as well. So you can think about how you can build bridges yourself if you're interested in two different specialties, or you can even do this within your own hospital or even between departments in your own lab. As always, I'll have links in the show notes to everything that we talked about today. Don't forget you can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at People of Path, or you can connect with me on LinkedIn. Thank you for continuing to share the show with others, and together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. And you can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network if you'd like to check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.